Welcome to the sixth episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. In this podcast, we will speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from their best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, we'll be speaking with Victor Wang. Welcome, Victor. Uh, thank you, David. It's great to be here. So it's a huge honor to have you on our platform. And I would like to start by just getting a quick introduction of your work and a little bit about the work that led to uh, your current work. Sounds great. Uh, so uh, my own background, I, I've been an entrepreneur uh, for much of my life. My parents were entrepreneurs. My grandfather ran a retail store uh, when he was in Taiwan. And uh, and so all my life, I've really searched for the answer to the question of how do we actually create prosperity? How do we create the good life? And um, my parents were, were immigrants, and for them, education was a big deal. So when they uh, came to the U.S., they really put a lot of emphasis on uh, on me getting a good education. I was lucky enough to get into Harvard at the end of high school, and, and so I was lucky enough to go. But what I didn't fully appreciate at the time is that my parents couldn't afford to send me. And so they had to get a second mortgage on the house. So they put everything on the line to send me. But then on top of that, they started a business. And that business um, was actually really hard in the beginning. They, they had no idea really how to do it in the beginning. They were not natural entrepreneurs. They were educators. Uh, but through sleepless nights, through working really, really hard, and I remember just how, how much of a struggle that was, they eventually turned it into uh, a, a, a nice software business that actually did a lot of great work for corporations and uh, for uh, state governments and city governments. Um, and so I was able to go to Harvard and I can thank uh, my parents' entrepreneurial instincts for, for doing that. Um, but one, one thing that was really interesting about the experience at Harvard is in the very first week of Harvard, you get to go class shopping. You get to sample a bunch of different classes. And one of the classes I went to was the intro to economics class, which was taught by a former presidential economic advisor. And uh, I went to the first day of class. And after the first day of intro economics at Harvard, I left and never went back. And one, one of the, uh, the thing that, that struck me about the class and about economics in general was that they talk about the cr a creation of prosperity from 30,000 feet, far, far up in the sky. They don't take into account the entrepreneurs, people like my parents, people just trying to find their way, trying to put their kids through college, trying to pay for their homes, trying to uh, trying to make a good living, uh, trying to just uh, pay the bills. And and I realized that it, it was fundamentally flawed. Like you could not have a theory or a model of prosperity that didn't take into account what ordinary people did on an ordinary day. Uh, and so that really was a big part in spurring my life forward in thinking about, well, what does where does prosperity come from? Where does the good life come from? And, and how can we actually think about how it all fits together? How does the view from 30,000 feet fit with the view from sitting across the coffee table from someone. And so from that point on, I did a whole bunch of different things. I was a corporate lawyer. I worked in nonprofits. I was a venture investor. I've been an entrepreneur a few times over. I got involved in some startup companies that were already going. And uh, and I, I was a consultant as well. I worked, I've done work for uh, major institutions like the World Bank and USAID in trying to spur entrepreneurship and innovation policy and building capital funds in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And, and that's kind of what led me to the work I did at Kauffman Foundation. And at Kauffman, we really took uh, a lot of these ideas of entrepreneurship as being um, 
really a, an agenda for the future of the country, both in terms of what you can do from a policy perspective, what you can do uh, at the, the level of running an a sub entrepreneurial support organization to building ecosystems to being just a member of the community and supporting that. Uh, and so, um, as, as you know, David, I left Kaufman at the beginning of the year and I launched uh, a new organization called Right to Start. And Right to Start is a campaign that's trying to fill a, a hole in the country. It's a hole where hope should be. And this is the fact that entrepreneurship should be a really, really important issue in the country, but we almost never hear about it. You almost, you basically almost never hear the presidential candidates talk about it, the Senate candidates. You almost never hear it even at the level of a state representative or a city council person or a mayor. It's just something that's kind of left on its own. We take it for granted as a society. Uh, there are so many issues that are contentious and entrepreneurship because it's something that uh, just happens invisibly all the time for the most part. Uh, it doesn't get paid attention to, and so it withers away. So what we're looking at trying to do with Right to Start is to fill that gap. And so if you think about how other causes have filled that gap, uh, the, the ACL, ACLU is for civil liberties, the NRA is for guns rights, who's fighting for entrepreneurial rights? How do we actually get the voice of entrepreneurs out into the public discourse and elevate this issue and actually drive policy change and actually change the way communities are run? Um, so that's what Right to Start is doing. We're actually uh, fighting for uh, equitable uh, access to entrepreneurial opportunity for everyone, regardless of uh, who they are, where they come from, their background, their circumstance. Uh, and, uh, and we're looking at and doing that try by trying to rebuild the American civic infrastructure uh, by, by actually getting people to care about entrepreneurship and pull together and fight for these issues. So tell me a little bit more about the specific areas in which Right to Start can help underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs? Because as we both know, the playing field is not level and everybody starts at a different point. I am myself an immigrant entrepreneur who started a venture called Startup Space to help with connecting resources. And what I found in the course of us going about our work is that in every community, entrepreneurs are starting at various levels are in various, their starting point is different. So have you kind of looked at, is there something specific with policy for underrepresented communities? Well, I, yes. I think the answer is the lower the starting point, the, the less the voice. And so, so many of the entrepreneurs that uh, actually are underrepresented are underrepresented for a reason because their voices aren't heard uh, uh, because it doesn't get out there. I was actually... Uh, uh, talking with someone who was in, involved in a major uh, political campaign, and the question came up of why, how, how do politicians decide what issues to put on their platform or what issues to talk about? And um, uh, their answer was really simple, which is it's what they get asked. So they respond to the questions they get asked. Well, if the people that are actually the most needy, the people that need help the most, are busy, are too busy, uh, they're too time-strapped, and they're too cash-strapped because they're basically trying to hustle and build businesses, uh, and they're struggling, and they don't have good social networks, and their, their voices aren't typically heard in the media, then they're going to be the ones who don't get to ask the questions, and as a result, policies don't change, uh, and as a result, the system ends up getting stacked against them. So it ends up perpetuating the biases in the system that people that are left out of the conversation end up getting even more left out and falling even further behind uh, because of those disparities. Uh, and so one of the things 
we're looking at in uh, a bunch of communities now is building an advocacy movement with boots on the ground, actually having what we call local ambassadors that will be drawn from underrepresented communities. And these become the voices of entrepreneurs. They help organize activities. Uh, they help uh, set up meetings with policymakers. They advocate uh, for the voice of entrepreneurs and policymaking and civic engagement. Uh, and they become the connectors uh, of the system. Uh, and so we're building out these types of structures in different places right now, and we're starting to see more and more interest in doing it because uh, that, that web of relationships that actually cause entrepreneurial ecosystems to function for entrepreneurs ha hasn't quite spread to uh, the full civic engagement infrastructure in terms of policy and shaping the life of a community as a whole. And so I think that's really the goal of Right to Start is to move entrepreneurship from being as successful as we've been in building entrepreneurial ecosystems as a movement. We've still got a long ways to go, and we're still largely regarded as kind of a side issue by most other sectors right now. Um, and so we have to go from being the cute, the cute thing that's taken for granted to being a serious mainstream thing that's, that people care about in public discourse. Um, and so that's what we're doing with Right to Start. We're, we've got three parts of our strategy. It's to change minds, change policies, and change communities. And, and if we can do that, we've, we've uh, reinvented the civic infrastructure of the country. One of the things that I've heard about that's kind of helped with entrepreneurship has been when city governments create space for representation for starting businesses, creating policies that can help with prototyping early stage solutions, uh, etc. Have you seen a city or a state where some of this is already in place that's working well that we can use as an example? Sure. There's actually quite a few um, cities and states that have started to take that model of bringing entrepreneurs in to be part of the innovation of government itself. Uh, one of the uh, pioneers in this was San Francisco. They actually created the Startup in Residence program uh, that now is replicated in many dozens of cities across the country. And I think that idea has really taken off where they it's like an open call for startup companies to to try to meet certain needs that the city has. And then uh, they pick a few and they embed those startups into the government uh, and give them a higher level of access to uh, governmental infrastructure and resources and contracts and and the end of the policymakers themselves. And uh, they've been able to make a big difference. And we've seen this happen uh, in different cities in terms of things like uh, digital services or procurement issues, or infrastructure issues, roads that need to be repaired, uh, and a, a variety of things where uh, moving fast and nimble, using new tools that policy isn't necessarily used to, uh, becomes really valuable. And I think that that's going to continue to spread, is finding ways to do that. What we haven't seen fully yet is uh, actually uh, finding ways to change the, the full procurement processes themselves in government. There's still uh, an inertia that happens in bureaucracy that you have to overcome. And uh, it's hard for new entrants to move into these systems, but I think these types of uh, startup and residence programs have, have made a big difference. So I've been kind of thinking about my own journey as an immigrant entrepreneur. And one thing that I've noticed is when there are incentives to change or incentives to move, it helps the system automatically do it. So for example, Politicians are incentivized by votes. Economic developers are incentivized by growth of the, of the community. 
is there a way to better tell the small business story so that the right incentives help drive this automatically? For example, if the people really understood that the small business economy is the engine of the country, I think that it would change the perspective from trying to attract the HQ2s to their city and kind of create better structures for small businesses to start and thrive. Have you looked at uh, how do we change these incentive structures for all of the different decision makers? Well, as you said, the incentive structures for elected officials is the vote. And I guess the question then to ask uh, to our entrepreneurial community and the people listening is, have you ever voted based off of entrepreneurship policy of a particular candidate? And I'm, I would bet you the answer is no. And, and so we have to ask that of ourselves. How are we actually leveraging the vote? And then if, if we're not, then why not? And a big part of it is we have not created the story of why this really matters. And we haven't taken that story and extended it all the way into, and here's the things that a policymaker must do to be able to, to support entrepreneurship properly. And here's the things that a community must do to be able to support entrepreneurship properly. And it's something that uh, actually uh, is tangible and actionable, and we can track it and see it. And I'll give you an example of it. So for instance, uh, climate change. Climate, climate change is about the most abstract concept you can possibly imagine. And I still remember two decades ago when we could not get people to care about climate change. And the thing that happened uh, really was all that work that had been done in the research and the science and the on the ground uh, efforts came to a head when Al Gore did the movie An Inconvenient Truth, uh, which came out from participant media. And, and he finally was able to tell this story, but it wasn't, it wasn't an overnight success. He'd been doing that presentation for 20 years. The science had been in place for several decades, and he was essentially telling the story of what had emerged at that point. I think entrepreneurship is at that similar moment. We've been building all the work. We've been gathering the research and the data and the science, and we are coming to our inconvenient truth moment where we have to actually take all that knowledge that we've accumulated on the ground from the people that truly, truly care and now tell a story out to the rest of, the, of, the, to the rest of society. Uh, and that's a crossing the chasm problem, right? For those of you that in the, startups, in the startup community know uh, crossing the chasm is a model used in product marketing and product launch. And so we're moving from the community of people that are very passionate and get it intuitively to the people that they, they need, they, they get validation from their peers. They need data, they need hard facts, they need hard numbers, and they need to see a movement that they can get on board. Uh, these will not, we're moving from the early adopters now to the, uh, to the mainstream adopters. And that's a different, it's a different story to be told. It's a different movement that we have to put in place to really translate that. And I know the people that are, in the startup uh, support space have seen this where you hit, it's like you're hitting walls with, if you're in economic development, you're hitting walls. If you're in uh, talking to policymakers about taxes, you're hitting walls. If you're talking to large corporations, you're hitting walls. If you're talking to bankers, you're hitting walls. It's because the story hasn't been told that cuts across all these issues. And I think that's the challenge is now we have to make entrepreneurship from being a side issue to being a front and center issue. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a challenge that all of us have to adopt. Talk to me a little bit about the incentives for the economic developers and the rest of the infrastructure that supports the small business community. There's the economic development aspect to it. There are the family foundations that incentivize this. There's so many other people involved other than the politicians. And sometimes in spite of the politicians, you could still make a big impact 
and and create big movements. Have you looked at the storytelling from the perspective of uh, driving wealth in the cities? Are there any metrics that you're tracking? You know, changing the hearts and minds sometimes might require hard facts. Have you looked at the other parts of the ecosystem and how you're going to be moving those forward? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, so here, I guess here's a really interesting thing about economic development. So a lot of people involved in entrepreneurship development uh, are not, they're not, the, they don't tend to often be the same people as they are in economic development. There's some overlap, but not as much as we'd like. What you, what people in entrepreneurship support don't know is that right now in the economic development community, their number one issue now, probably, I think it's for the first time ever, the number one issue is entrepreneurship and small business support. That has happened now. The COVID um, pandemic has really driven it to number one. It was number it was one of the top three last year, and now it's become number one this year. But here's the thing, and I've talked to people in economic development about this. This is not what they know how to do normally. There are some people that know how to do it, so I'm overgeneralizing. But as an institutional class, they want to do it. They're incentivized to do it. They care about the issue. They really want to make a difference. But this is not what they've been trained to do, and it's not what they know. And so then you ask the question, well, have, why haven't they been trained in it? What are the tools to do it? Well, the question is then, well, where do they get those tools from? And, and how do we translate those tools now from being something that uh, you have to live it, you have to experience it, you have to be in it for years, to something that you could teach someone in a class, uh, in a three-day class, in a webinar, and have them good enough to be able to go out there and actually be, be able to make a difference? Just like all sorts of skills that get built up over time, whether it's uh, engineering or architecture or mathematics or literature, there are pedagogies on how you teach and how you train. We haven't really done that in entrepreneurial support very well. There, are, I mean, there are a lot of people who've been doing this work, so I, I want to give a lot of respect to the people that have been doing it. But have we really put it in terms that are translatable uh, to the rest of uh, society in that people that care about this issue have we made it easy for them to adopt it have we you know put the cereal in a nice cereal box and I think the answer we have to be honest with ourselves has largely been no I think that's that's the work to be done right now so economic developers care about this issue IEDC the International Economic Development Council has polled they polls that they poll their members on this stuff entrepreneurship small business is at the top of the list uh, one of the things uh, uh, we did at Kaufman right before I left is we helped um, seed fund a new project for developing a course on entrepreneurial ecosystem building at IEDC, which was designed by our friends at SourceLink. And that's getting piloted right now. And if it's successful, it'll actually roll out and start to grow. And that's where you start to see these transfer points between traditional economic development and the startup support community, where the knowledge sharing and the knowledge transfer uh, starts to become more active. So talking a little bit about COVID-19, and and that serving as a catalyst to to spur this uh, new focus on small business and entrepreneurship. I'm sure you've heard of stories across the country of people pivoting, people having to close their businesses down. Are there any silver linings that you've heard of? Because when we look at past recessions or past activities that have impacted economic growth, it has always led to large-scale innovations or inventions. If you look at 2008 and the host of companies that came out of that, what excites you most about COVID-19 and the millions of innovators that are these small businesses looking to bring on new technologies, looking to redo processes, create new value? Have you seen anything that excites you? 
uh, huge. Um, it's largely not covered by the mainstream media, but there are huge shifts that have been happening this year. Um, I still remember on March 11th, uh, the WHO had a uh, World Health Organization had a press conference. This was the same day that everything went crazy in the U.S., where everything started getting shut down. And uh, the head of their uh, uh, infectious disease program uh, said, you know, what people have to appreciate is that pandemics are not just diseases. They're stress tests for an entire system. Uh, they stress test the trust between citizenry and government. They stress test the relationships between individuals, between citizens. Uh, they stress test all the supply chains of an economy. And I remember on March 11th, it felt like a bit of an exaggeration. Like, how could it possibly be that bad? Well, now we know it really is that bad. It really does stress all different aspects of society. And it stresses our small business support systems. One of the things that has happened uh, is uh, the PPP program, for instance, uh, required money to go through the SBA loan guarantee program, which is called 7A. And 7A traditionally has gone through more established banks uh, because those were the least risky for SBA to work with. And those were the ones that had the most capacity to handle uh, the volume and the scrutiny and the, and the, the potential liability issues for banks. Um, but what's become very clear now, and this has been well documented all over the media, has been how unequal the distribution of that PPP money was. And that's because of that stress test, right? We, we essentially had a full financial stress test of our entrepreneurial infrastructure. And the, the system for government to get money out to small businesses uh, failed. And 7A was the best we had. And it totally failed. And the reason was because uh, it just exacerbated the inequalities that were already present in the system. So the, the, the successful banks worked with the most successful startups with the least risk, which is kind of obvious when you think about it in hindsight. Um, and, the, and so the entrepreneurs that needed help the most, those from underserved or marginalized communities, they were the ones who actually got served the least and they had a hard time and the data prove it out. They were the, the, the amount of PPP loans into underserved communities where black communities, Latino communities, uh, rural communities uh, was just was way, way less than it was to more established companies or venture-backed startups in uh, major hubs. Uh, but here's the silver lining, if there can be a silver lining to so much disaster that's happened out there. Um, the 7A program had never before let in CDFIs, the community development financial institutions, which do small-scale lending uh, to the neediest of entrepreneurs. Uh, they'd never let in fintech companies before uh, because there was a lot of distrust of the fintech mechanism. Um, uh, but what happened as a result? About, well, the first wave of PPP went out and did not go to them. But then by, by after a couple of months, they figured this out. And so there was an enrollment of a, a, a whole wave of CDFIs into the PPP program. Those, those CDFIs now are permanently a part of the 7A system, right? They are now enrolled in that channel. And then uh, fintech companies came and they even uh, banded together in a coalition to open up uh, PPP access. And so those are now players in the 7A system. So it's really uh, created these, the stress test has led to change. And uh, there's a wider recognition of how the system uh, failed in getting that out. And now what's what a real potential benefit it is, uh, the 7A, the SBA system now for loan guarantees can actually reach out even further. And I kind of think of it as a difference between arteries and capillaries. Uh, arteries being uh, the big uh, blood vessels that move lots of blood and the capillaries being 
the smaller vessels that actually work out at your fingertips and your toes uh, and in small places of your body that the arteries don't get to. <clears throat> the arteries work just fine in our society. That's Wall Street. That's the PPP system in its first wave. The capillaries are the problem. It's getting small amounts of money to small entrepreneurs. And uh, we, this, the system through the pandemic has actually uh, pu it's sharpened that and it's, it's pushed money out into the capillaries in a way that will sustain. It's actually a, a good change for the system. Let's shift a little bit of focus to our listeners who are the ecosystem practitioners. Looking at the right to start movement and what we should expect in the days to come, what are some things that ecosystem builders can look at in terms of retooling, in terms of the messaging? Uh, is there, I know you had mentioned that for the IEDC, there is a program now to educate uh, economic developers. What about the, the support network that's being provided by the entrepreneurship ecosystem builders in the communities? Are there some tools for them to start communicating better, getting access to some of the resources they need to amplify their voices? We just launched a field guide for policymakers that support entrepreneurship on the Right to Start website. And that field guide is um, it's inspired by America's New Business Plan. So those of uh, our listeners who uh, aren't familiar with that, that's a, a policy agenda for entrepreneurship that we launched um, in November last year, right before I left the Kauffman Foundation. And that was the work of um, a lot of people. It took uh, about almost a couple of years. Uh, and we had the former heads of policy for the Bush White House and the Clinton White House that helped us put it together. Uh, and so that that America's New Business Plan is very comprehensive. It's got 43 things, 43 policy issues uh, to take up. Uh, what we wanted to do with Right to Start is a response to uh, the next thing we wanted to fill in the gap, which is what we heard from a lot of um, uh, policymakers we talked to directly. So we talked to mayors, city council people, state legislators, uh, governors, and they said, uh, can you just make it easier for us? Can you give us really, really specific examples of other cities, other states that are doing things? Can you give us model legislation, model ordinances, uh, links? Uh, we need really, really specific actionable things, and, and we need data and research to back it up for all of these things uh, because they need to be able to justify it, and they want to be able to turn the dial and actually implement something quickly. And so that's what the field guide is. It's actionable steps uh, at local, state, and federal levels for policymakers to take on. And what's been great about that field guide uh, just since launching it is we've already found an uptake. People are people are telling us they're finding it, they're giving it, they're sending it to their mayor, they're sending it to their state senator, um, and it, it actually meets people where they are. It, it actually uh, speaks in the language of a mayor, it speaks in the language of a state legislator, it speaks in the language of a congressperson at the level of what do I do next? Uh, and um, and hopefully it's been really useful. So I encourage people to take a look at that field guide. That's a really specific thing for people to do. And we're going to be uh, uh, at Right to Start increasingly building out a support system to help people engage with their policymakers more and more uh, over the coming year. Uh, the other resource, uh, uh, a tool we offer people is what we call a start warming party. So this is the idea that uh, we celebrate all sorts of things. We celebrate babies. We celebrate new homes in housewarming parties, but we don't really celebrate new businesses. I think so many entrepreneurs are a bit shy or even embarrassed about having to start a business sometimes. And what we want to do is to, to celebrate it the way, it, you know, back on the American frontier 150 years ago, they do a barn raising to sell. The community would come together to help lift a barn. Well, let's have start warming parties to celebrate 
launching a company or launching a project on Etsy or launching a Kickstarter effort. Um, people, I have friends that launch Kickstarter efforts, but they don't really, they send out an email to everybody, but wouldn't it be great to have a party around it? And that can be an online party too on Zoom. So on the Right to Start website, we provide uh, a, a simple instruction guide for how to have a start owning party. And we've already heard of people doing this. There's a whole community of Berea, uh, uh, Kentucky, which is in the eastern rural part of Kentucky that's doing start owning parties now where they, um, in you know, the students at the Berea College are involving the mayor, they're involving uh, entrepreneurs in town, and they're having these active conversations to talk about entrepreneurial activity. And we're seeing that kind of thing start to happen in many places. And we're going to continue to build that out. And as we build out more boots on the ground for Right to Start, uh, we will actually start to encourage and support and provide more fuel into that 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 activity. And also, let's touch on the small businesses and entrepreneurs listening to this podcast. What can they do to better equip themselves to be part of this movement? Well, the simplest thing is just join the movement. It's free to join. Just uh, go on to righttostart.org and join the newsletter. And we, we don't spam. We don't just create news for the sake of news. We actually send stuff out that we think is useful and think that people would want to know about and that can use. Uh, and so we're going to continue to do that. And we encourage everybody to, to join the movement uh, for Right to Start. Uh, follow us on social media. Uh, and then, uh, and then get active. Again, the policymakers are only going to do things that they're asked about. So, what are we asking them about? What are we talking about? And so, there's no if you haven't talked to your mayor or your city council person or your state representative about entrepreneurship issues. Well, here's the chance. Look at the field guide. Pick out something that resonates with you, and there are very simple, actionable things that should speak to you. Pick something out and send an email to your state rep or your mayor or city council person about it. And we have a little, we actually have tools there where you can actually look up your state rep if you don't know who that person is. Most people don't. Uh, or your, your mayor or your governor or your congressperson. You can look them up and you could send them an email uh, about it. Um, so th that's the simplest, simplest thing to do. If we don't speak up, no one's going to care. And, and I think that's the simple truth that we have to realize is that we are the ones we've been waiting for. We have to speak for ourselves and we have to recruit others to this movement. Uh, if we don't speak up, um, nothing will change. Let's make this a little exciting. So tell me, what does this movement look like in 2021? How many of us are going to band together? Give us some numbers that, uh, that you know, kind of helps understand the size of this movement. Well, we're shooting for trying to get 100,000 advocates engaged in this effort. Uh, right now, if you think about entrepreneurial advocacy, it's it's kind of fragmented out there. It's in you know communities, and a few states have some efforts that are kind of loose, um, but there isn't a a voice that coordinates it all into a, a broader movement. And um, and so what we want to do is to be ha have a hundred thousand advocates across all fifty states. We want to have one hundred ambassadors, our organizers on the ground, um, in at least thirty states. Uh, and we want to be able to have 50 policymakers engaged on these issues and driving uh, adoption of uh, change, change policies. And so uh, hopefully that's by 2021. But, uh, you know, you never know. It, in the Internet era, things can move fast, but it's hard to make change happen. It takes a while. Um, I know. I, I mean, I've, I've been uh, working on uh, building ecosystem building into a thing for a decade. And in the, in the first few years, not too many people really cared, uh, but then it accelerates. Things are, as they say, uh, things start gradually and then suddenly. 
And uh, so it's hard to say exactly when something's going to take off. But I do know this issue is going to happen. It's just a question of whether we can do it within a year or it's going to take 10 years or 20 years. Uh, but it has to happen. And uh, there's a real need for it. So it's really up to us and the people that are listening, those of us in this community that support these issues to take action and, and make it happen. I know you've been doing this for over a decade, like you just mentioned. What is one advice that practitioners of entrepreneurship ecosystem building can take away from this podcast? We, we talk a lot about in entrepreneurship around what we tell our entrepreneurs, which is to get out the door, talk to new people, and um, you know, be exposed to new ideas. And the, the community of people that build, that support entrepreneurs do that as well. But there are certain communities we probably don't spend as much time in. Uh, and so we probably don't go out the door and talk as often to policymakers or economic developers or people involved in tax policy or people involved in educational reform or, um, uh, you know, you name it. There, there are institutions that I think we tend to view as uh, difficult to tackle institutions. And so um, I think there's a, there can be a sense of fear in trying to go after them or a sense of futility in going after them. But I think if we don't do it, who else will? Um, and so I think being willing to take the same things we tell an entrepreneur. We tell an entrepreneur, don't be afraid to walk into that large corporation and offer to be a vendor to them. Well, in some ways, we should be doing the same thing ourselves. We should be going to the economic developer's offices. We should be and realize that they speak a different language, just like a corporation would speak a different language to an entrepreneur, that we have to speak in a different way with a different set of tools and metrics and incentives uh, to speak to people that come from different industries. And we have to be willing to listen, just like any good client, uh, any, any good business serves its customers. We have to think of uh, these other organizations as potential uh, partners and even customers ourselves. So I think that's the advice I'd give, which is how do we transition entrepreneurial support from being a, a cute fringe movement, which is what a lot of people might think of us as, into a serious force and that actually can drive uh, mainstream change. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's the incumbent challenge that's upon us. And that's the advice I give people. So last question, how can we find more about Right to Start? I know you've mentioned it, but if you don't mind letting us know one more time where we can sign up and how we can be part of the movement. Yep. Right to Start website is righttostart.org. And it's free to join the movement. Just sign, give, put your email address in and we'll send you the newsletters. Uh, and uh, there's also a lot of free resources on there. Uh, there's a manifesto that I wrote to uh, frame the ideas and the data and the research and the strategies of what we're doing at Right to Start. The manifesto is called We Are All Starters. And uh, there's resources on how to host startwarming parties. There's a field guide for policymakers. Uh, there are a bunch of links to other resources and data and, and uh, research on the importance of entrepreneurship that can be useful. Uh, so this is something where we really want to build this movement. And uh, anyone that wants to join and cares about these issues, we need them. I, I'll give an example. I just got a request from a state uh, where they're doing a policy hackathon. In Maryland, they're doing a policy hackathon. Um, and they're looking for people not just in Maryland to participate. Well, if Right to Start is further along, we can actually help build these hackathons everywhere and provide the people and the, the resources to, to make sure they're successful in communities all across the country. So that's the kind of thing where, if you think about that, that's a state senator who's, who, who wanted to do that hackathon. But can we enroll allies like that all across the country? 
and can we do it in communities large and small and um, and really make a difference that way? And I'm sure, I believe the answer is yes. And we just have to, to, to make the effort and we have to do it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Victor. We look forward to being part of this movement, helping drive our listeners to join and participate. And uh, we would love to have you back somewhere down the line to hear about how far the movement has come along and, and updates since we spoke now. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, David. I love the work you're doing and thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Pongrach. Special thanks to Victor Wang for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates. 